0: Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal.
0: Joe, what is the most overused quote in all of financial journalism and commentary?
1: Uh, I don't even know where to begin with that question. I, um, I don't know. I, I I'm stumped.
0: Well, it might not be that obvious, actually. OK, in my humble opinion, it has to be the quote by James Carville, the uh, Bill Clinton advisor about the bond market. Did you ever hear that one?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love that quote. The one about James Carville <laughs> saying that he wishes or he said if he wants to if he gets reincarnated, he'd like to come back as the bond market because that could scare everyone. Right. Something like that along those lines.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good paraphrase. Uh, he said so that I could intimidate everyone. And I have to say, if you're if you're a financial writer, I guarantee you at some point or another, you have probably begun a column or a story with that quote.
1: But there, <laughs> I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah,
0: and I'm certainly guilty of it, I have to admit. Uh, but there's a reason that it resonates so much, which is that the power of the bond market is something that we're constantly discussing. And Joe, you'll remember a, a couple episodes back, we did have... Uh, One episode where we were discussing the return of the bond vigilantes.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And uh, it's what the bond vigilantes. uh, It's this idea that from time to time, policymakers have their actions rejected forcefully in the bond market and they're cowed into action by what the market is telling them, so to speak.
0: That's right. So it's the idea that the bond market can act as a constraint on fiscal policy by basically raising a government's borrowing costs. And the reason we bring it up now is because in addition to the U.S. context, you know, we had that big rise in U.S. bond yields and people were talking about whether or not bond vigilantes were coming back because the U.S. was embarking on this big fiscal expansion. We've also seen the power of the bond market in recent weeks as demonstrated by what's been going on in Europe and specifically Italy.
1: Yeah, the old, uh, the old Euro crisis story is coming back in Italy. <laughs>
0: That's right. It all feels very 2012. We saw a big blowout in Italian bond spreads. Everyone got very excited, started dusting off the old uh, fiscal playbooks from uh, circa you know, 2010, 2011, 2012. And we all got to talk about uh, the bond market reaction to Eurozone political and fiscal drama once again. So that was very exciting. But of course, You know, we do have this ongoing discussion about the bond market in general, but also how it relates to U.S. equities. And on that note, because we had the big rise in U.S. bond yields earlier this year, we have seen short term rates on government debt actually go above the U.S. dividend yield for the first time in many, many years.
1: Yeah, I've seen a bunch of versions of this chart lately. And you mentioned the idea of bond, short-term bond yields going uh, above dividend yields, but there have been various variations on it. But the general theme seems to be that for the first time in a long time, you can get paid a decent amount of money o- owning short-term government debt, which is, uh, carries very little real risk. And the competing yield you can get from equities, whether we're looking at the dividend yield or just the straight up earnings yield, which is the inverse of the P.E. ratio, is looking less juicy by comparison. (laughs)
0: <laughs> exactly right. So we're talking about a lot of different things here. And the reason we're doing that is because we actually have a really fantastic guest for this episode who is able to thread all these different subjects together. And he is actually the person who coined the term bond vigilantes. So that's exciting.
1: Oh, wow. So I, now I feel very um self-conscious from having tried to give my <laughs> feeble uh, definition of the term because we are literally <laughs> going to talk to uh, the originator of it.
0: All right. Well, without further ado, then let's bring in our guest. It's Ed Yardeni. He is president of Yardeni Research. Ed, thank you so much for joining
2: us. Thank you very much. And by the way, I think you got it all spot, spot on. So. Okay,
1: phew. That's a big relief. <laughs> uh,
0: that's a shame because my first question to you was going to be to ask you to embarrass Joe about his <laughs> definition. But I guess I don't get to do that now.
2: No, I think I think uh, both of you got it right on.
0: So should we start with bond vigilantes and just go back in time and uh, talk about how you came up with that term?
2: It was back in the summer of 1983. um I noticed that bond yields were rising, and that created a lot of concerns that uh, the bond market would push us back into a recession. And I argued that the bond market was probably turning into a a bunch of bond vigilantes who would, uh, as you folks mentioned, would intervene if they felt that the policymakers weren't doing right by keeping inflation down. And I think there were three or four episodes in the 1980s where bond yields rose. And wouldn't you know it, subsequently, nominal GDP growth slowed substantially and then bond yields came down. So I would say the heyday of the bond vigilantes was actually the 1980s in the United States.
1: Now, something I've always sort of been a little bit unclear on with respect to the term is the idea that people in the bond market who are buyers of bonds or traders of bonds somehow take on the role of the vigilante who enforces justice on their own, or is it more that bond market or bond market participants in the course of their normal assessment of risks and trading and positioning their portfolios suddenly take a vigilante-like role towards policymakers? So is it a more active conscious thought, I guess, or is it more sort of descriptive of the relationship that naturally emerges during times when a government is being punished for policy mismanagement?
2: Yeah, I think it depends on the circumstances, depends on the the policy mistakes. If the policy mistakes are uh, blatantly obvious to to everybody, or at least everybody in the bond market, then the policy saddles up and starts pushing bond yields higher and maybe higher than you would think justified by today's fundamentals. But the bond vigilantes are concerned that uh, the way the policy is going, things are going to get much worse and they have to kind of jump in aggressively. But there's other times when bond yields go up sort of in the natural course of things without necessarily implying that the bond market's kind of taken over the streets.
0: So I have a related question about the time frame that we're looking at, because often the trajectory of sovereign debt doesn't change on a day-to-day basis. Just to be clear, you could have news about a big policy change and then the bond market reacts to it. But normally you get sort of a gradual direction that you're heading in. So when we see something like what happened uh, with Italy, let's see, in late May, when suddenly the market seemed to wake up to the realities of uh, Italian indebtedness, what exactly is going on there? How are bond markets actually reacting to the situation?
2: Well, again, this is consistent with our discussion that you know, it depends on the circumstances. There's no kind of unique definition of or explanation for spotting the when the bond vigilantes are actually doing their thing. It's, sometimes it's we, we know it on a coincident or uh, retrospective basis. But in the 1980s, uh, the bond vigilantes were concerned about a rebound in inflation and that the Fed wasn't being tough enough, was behind the curve, and they had to get ahead of the curve to bring inflation down. In the case of Italy uh, now, in the case of Greece, a few years ago, the issue wasn't inflation making the comeback. The issue was was much more serious, which was like credit quality. It's one thing to own bonds when inflation is going up. It's another thing to own bonds that become worthless. And so, I think in the Italian situation, the bond vigilantes were saying, "No mas." I don't know how you say that in Italian, but <laughs> uh, the idea, the idea is, you know, um, we're not going to accept an Italian government that basically reneges on its Euro obligations and and is at risk of actually being downgraded by Moody's. Moody's uh, threatened, and I still uh, I believe the threat's still on that if the uh, new Italian government behaves fiscally responsibly, Moody's will uh, sort of empower the bond vigilantes by downgrading the the credit.
1: One thing that I find to be interesting about Italy, I was uh, I traveled there in early 2013 during one of their previous elections. And I imagine if you ask the average American what the U.S. 10-year yield is uh, yielding, you would get a range of uh, either numbers or just completely blank stares. Like it's not something that many people think about. But in Italy, it's kind of like their Dow Jones or S&P. Everybody knows what it is. The term low spread is in the news and politicians talk about it. Everyone's acutely aware of the spread of Italian bond yields to German bond yields and so it really does have that effect of policymakers conscious of the spread and wanting to bring it down for domestic political reasons
2: as you know uh, prior to the monetary unification the introduction of the of the euro to the eurozone spreads between italy and spain on the one hand and germany france netherlands uh, on the other hand was actually quite wide in other words Italy and Spain were viewed as relatively risky compared to uh, to German uh, yields. Then in uh, 1999, the euro was introduced, and lo and behold, everybody came to the conclusion that European bonds were all the same, the Italian, Spanish, Greek, Irish, Portuguese bonds, that they, they all should have the same low yield as Germany. And then uh, obviously uh, there was a rude awakening in 2010, 11, 12 with Greece, and uh, now, once again, with uh, with Italy, that there is credit risk, and the risk is that you'll have a Grexit or, I don't know, has anybody come up with a one-word expression? It'll leave. What is it? It'll leave. It'll leave. I like that one. I, I, <laughs> I knew there was something out there. <laughs> so that raises credit risk issues.
0: So uh, let me segue to something else that's happening in Europe or um, on the edges of Europe, depending on where you stand politically. But over in Turkey, we've also seen some financial drama where President Erdogan is basically exerting influence on the central bank and trying to uh, prevent them from hiking interest rates at a time when arguably there is a lot of inflation and they should be hiking interest rates. So if you were to ask Erdogan about bond vigilantes, I'm sure he would probably... um, shake away any of their concerns and say that the bond market isn't the right entity to be exerting political influence over fiscal decisions. So I'm just curious, do you think the bond market should be influencing political or fiscal decisions?
2: Well, you know, I I tell people I'm I'm not a preacher. I don't do good or bad. I do bullish or bearish. And, you know, I, I deal with the facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground are that you know, Turkey has depended on capital inflows from abroad, and that's partly because their yields have been higher because there there is deemed to be a, a credit risk. But they they weren't terribly higher. Um, Turkey was getting some, some pretty good rates until uh, Erdogan decided that he didn't like an independent uh, central bank. Now, look, the bond always sort of have a, an issue with uh, the central banks but uh, it gets to be much, much worse in terms of their reaction if the central bank is deemed to not be independent, to to be blatantly politically uh, driven. So what we're seeing here is kind of global bond vigilantes. It's certainly uh, not locals in Turkey that have pushed their interest rates up and their currency uh, into the abyss. It's been foreigners who have been looking for good opportunities, uh, thought that Turkey was relatively stable and and that their fiscal monetary policies were, you know, relatively uh, acceptable. And then when they turned unacceptable, they left. So this is an example of the posse s- saddling up and leaving the country, which is what happened in Turkey. And as a result, rates spiked up uh, dramatically, um, and the currency took a dive.
1: And you talk about how the bond vigilantes saddle up at sort of random times throughout history. So there were a few episodes in the U.S. in the 80s related to anxiety over inflation. And now, of course, Greece and Italy. And one of the things that we know about markets and extreme market moves, uh, markets are complex systems and we never really know what catalyzes any extreme move. So we could try to pinpoint something like, oh, you know, maybe uh, there was some data release or some comment that Erdogan made or something that a politician in Italy said, But we know that these are at best just approximations and it's very hard to really talk about why a market shifts from one regime of potential complacency to another regime of uh, sort of the market uh, playing a disciplining force. In your work, looking at the bond market, do you have any insight into what it is that sort of how the uh, how the posse all sort of uh, coordinates and gathers up or saddles up and shifts from one mode into the other?
2: In the world we live in, information flows at the speed of light. We all get the same information of what an important policymaker is saying in in Turkey or a new uh, potential government, what their leaders are saying. Uh, So we we all have that information at the same time. And over the years, the bond market just kind of gotten uh, the rules of the game, which is the bond market, first and foremost, wants to make sure that inflation remains down. But maybe I shouldn't say first and foremost, because just as important, and actually much more important, is making sure that you get your money back. Uh, so it's uh, both the uh, the inflation rate and the, the credit risk. And very often what happens is the bond market gets its way. The policymakers hear the, uh, the message being sent by the bond vigilantes, or they put up their hands and they uh, say, all right, we'll give you what you want. That was sort of Carville's uh, quote that you mentioned, basically advising Clinton, Make sure you satisfy the bond market, then everything else will fall into place.
0: So I'm going to shift into a different regime now to try to draw a connection between what we've seen happening in bonds, specifically in the U.S. with the recent rise in rates, and uh, what's been happening in the equity market. And here as well... Ed, you have been very influential because you actually came up with a model that's well-known in the investment world now, or at least you put a name on the model. It's called the Fed model. Could you uh, possibly walk us through how this works?
2: The term I I gave it was the Fed stock valuation model. And back in uh, 1997, it was the summer of 1997, the Fed released its monetary policy report. I don't think anybody ever reads that report, but I I skimmed it and saw that the Fed actually was trying to come up with some way to uh, determine whether stocks were overvalued or undervalued. You'll recall it was 1996, end of 1996, that uh, Greenspan, Fed Chairman Greenspan, gave his famous speech, Wondering Out Loud. He asked the question, how do we know whether stocks are uh, uh, fairly valued, overvalued, or undervalued? And his staff must have scrambled to try to help the boss figure out the answer to that question, and they mm-hmm. came up with a, a model that actually had actually been around for a while, just hadn't been given as much attention to prior to uh, them mentioning in the monetary policy report, and then my pointing it out, and uh, I think kind of took a life of its own. Uh, but the basic idea is that the stock market uh, must be influenced by interest rates. Uh, it certainly is influenced by short-term rates in terms of the business cycle, but in terms of Long-term rates, uh, they, they are an alternative to, to stocks. The difference between uh, bonds and stocks is if you buy a bond uh, and hold it to maturity, you'll, you'll earn the coupon, and depending on whether inflation is or isn't a problem, you give some of it back in, in maybe purchasing power. Stocks, on the other hand, uh, give you a, a yield based on their dividends, uh, but they also have a lot more upside if things work out pretty well, and then, of course, they have downside if they don't. So uh, and uh, what the Fed did is... Uh, They showed a chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond yield. And then on the same chart, they showed uh, the S&P 500 uh, forward earnings yield. And as Joe mentioned, that's just the flip side of the P.E. Instead of price divided by earnings, take earnings divided by price. And so it's the earnings yield of the S&P 500. Uh, Currently, uh, well, let's say in May, uh, the um, earnings yield was 6% for the uh, S&P 500 and the bond yield is more like uh, 3%. That implies that stocks are 50% undervalued. The problem with this model is it's been arguing that the the stocks are undervalued ever since 2001, 2002, which on balance really wasn't a bad call. I mean, look how much higher we are now than we were back then, but it certainly did not anticipate the 2007, 2008 mega bear market. You, You got a use it with some caution. In other words, the model really worked very well prior to when the the Fed discovered it. They discovered it in 1997. (laughs) It worked like a charm. And then it worked for another couple of years, told you to get out in 2000, 2001. And then it wasn't really of much use uh, since then.
1: Yeah, so this sort of gets to where I was going, which is that there is an intuitive appeal to the model, which is that you have this uh, risk-free asset class that tells you upfront how much you're going to get paid and you can discount that future stream of cash flows a very predictable way. And then uh, you have this risky asset class and you don't really know much, but you can sort of see how it compares or what it's offering versus the risk-free rate. But as you said, and as many as others have pointed out in finance, it the only problem with it is that it often doesn't work or, and you can't really use it to time the market. So how should an investor incorporate it into their practice if it uh, sort of often fails at uh, timing the market?
2: I'm glad you asked that question because I've been I've uh, very often in, in my career, and I've been doing this for 40 years, and by the way, I got to plug my book. I wrote a book uh, called Predicting the Markets, and I do discuss this model in, in great detail. But I think one of the things I've learned over the years is that the bond vigilantes aren't the only players in the bond market. There's also central banks and uh, one of the reasons that uh, bond yields have stayed so low is because the central banks, especially since 2008, have kept them e- extremely low. And the other factor is inflation. And I think there's been some very powerful structural, secular forces that uh, have been keeping inflation down. And the number one uh, preoccupation of the bond vigilantes is inflation in the United States. They don't worry quite as much about the uh, credit quality of uh, government bonds. So far, so good, I should say. But here's here's what I've come up with, and that is that the stock valuation model in some ways is sort of it's misleading because that term uh, doesn't really say what it is. It's it's a stocks versus bonds valuation model, and it may very well be that it isn't that stocks are grossly undervalued. It may be that the bonds are grossly overvalued and uh, the yield has been kept too low by the central banks. And now that they're normalizing, we should see a more normal relationship in this model. But I really think the model actually still is useful, not as a stocks versus bonds asset allocation model. I think investors should view it more as a um, corporate finance model. I found that we can relate the buyback activities uh, that we're seeing in the S&P 500 companies to the spread between the um, forward earnings yield, again, the inverse of the PE. And the cost of borrowing in the corporate bond market, and I on an after-tax basis. And right now, I reckon on an after-tax basis, corporations can borrow money like maybe for four percent on average, you know, good and bad quality, averaging them together. And the forward earnings yield is uh, six is percent. So you almost have a fiduciary responsibility if you're running a corporation to borrow that cheap money and buy back your stocks. And so I really think the, uh I've sort of salvaged the. Uh, stock valuation model by pointing out that uh, it actually has worked, but that is a bonds versus stock model, rather, as a buyback model. And buybacks have been driving this bull market.
0: Two things there. Uh, It's a really interesting point. Does that mean that the major risks to equities now are that the buybacks actually stop, as a lot of people have been concerned that they might? And secondly, is the major risk also a derivative of what might happen to bonds if we start to see inflation come back or if central banks start to wind down their extraordinary stimulus?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you got it right right on the money. And that is, since buybacks have been the major reason why we've got have had this bull market. You remember back 2009, 2010, a lot of the bears were saying it's all sugar high, it's being driven on fumes, they couldn't see who the heck was buying, it wasn't institution that was in retail, and I was saying, wait a second, there's another buyer here that's being ignored, and that's the uh, corporations buying back their own shares, and that's been trillions of dollars of buybacks. Now, I'm not terribly worried anytime soon that that's going to stop, because we've got a bunch of money coming from uh, repatriated earnings as a result of the tax law change at the end of uh, last year, and I think a lot of that money is going to continue to go into uh, to buybacks, And the bond yield, even though it's come up, is still below the forward earnings yield of the S&P. So there still could be some borrowing in the bond market for buybacks. But as a general statement, if something happens that for some reason stops the buybacks, then it's hard to see how this market keeps going higher. It's not too hard to see how it might go uh, uh, lower. Now, perhaps the the biggest risk out there, uh, more than the buybacks, is that inflation makes a comeback. We've all gotten pretty lulled in thinking that inflation is tame. There's people looking for it every single day. I'm looking at, for it for a single day, not because I expect it to come back, but because I've taken a professional forecasting uh, position that inflation's dead. So, you know, um, if it ever comes back, I'm going to look pretty silly. Though I will change, <laughs> change along my, uh, the way. I, I try to be flexible and open-minded about these things. But, yeah, I mean, if uh, inflation makes a comeback, all bets are off, then you get higher bond yields, maybe dramatically higher bond yields, then the the Fed model suddenly would come into play in a vicious way, showing that the spike in bond yields is fatal for the bull market.
1: So reapplying your sort of altered Fed model of forward earnings yield versus uh, corporate borrowing costs, thinking back to this approach in the pre-crisis period, 2006, 2007, I'm curious, A, whether that would have been a more useful signal than the sort of pure earnings yield versus uh, 10-year rate, and B, how much uh, is the problem still that you know forward earnings yield is just a guess, and very few people would have really predicted that earnings would have, were about to drop off a cliff during the great financial crisis?
2: My bottom line on uh, what causes bear markets is bear markets are caused by recessions. And as you know, economists there haven't been that many recessions, and yet economists keep missing them. And because they are, don't happen that often. But I think I don't really know of any model that you know really timed it perfectly to get out in 2007, 2008. I, I know there's the Schiller Cape model, uh, there's the uh, Buffett uh, stock market valuation to, to GDP model. They were all signaling that uh, stocks were very expensive, and they did the same thing in in 1999-2000. Uh, and so I, I would say that there are, all, there are alternative valuation models that have been more useful with the benefit of hindsight. The problem with uh, a lot of those models is, especially the CAPE model, the, the Shiller model, is it looks at earnings over the past 10 years. And so it's always going to be more bearish than a valuation metric that's looking forward, which is the, the, the Fed model or just the straightforward forward PE. So I think you want to look at valuation models. You want to look at all of them. You want to uh, decide for yourself whether you think the stocks are a little pricey and that there's potential uh, downside. But what you really got to get right is uh, the next recession. If Right now, uh, S&P forward PE is around 16, 16 and a half. That's not cheap. It's not terribly expensive either. But if there's not going to be a recession for the next several years, then the P.E. could go up. If there's a recession right around the corner, you don't want to be in stocks. I think the expansion is going to last a while longer. And I'm not terribly concerned that valuations are, uh, are, are, are too extended.
0: All right. Well, Ed, that has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And it was such a pleasure to have the inventor of the bond vigilante's term actually on the podcast to discuss it. So thank you so much. Thank you. So, Joe, I love that conversation, because partly because we managed to cover so much ground and we really kind of thread the needle uh, between U.S. bond vigilantes, what's happening in Europe, not just Italy and Turkey, uh, but also what's happening with U.S. equities. So uh, an all-round general topics, Odd Lots podcast, I would say.
1: Yeah, it was really good and very timely because, as you know, that term bond vigilantes is controversial and some people think it's kind of a myth. But I think Italy is a very crisp example where you see the market reaction in the bond market immediately applying pressure to politicians. And they look to that number and feel like, OK, we're getting a rejection from this crucial market. And to some extent, that forces them to consider reversing course. So the uh, the metaphor works very nicely in this context, I think.
0: Yeah, and I love that anecdote you have of your uh, visit to Italy where everyone on the street is talking about the two-year Italian bond deal. I love
1: it. Or was it 10-year? I can't remember. Uh, Either one, I think. (laughs) Lo spread.
0: Yeah, lo spread. Um, That's fantastic. So the other really interesting part of that conversation, of course, is the Fed model. And you've actually seen it making a little bit of a comeback given the uh, concerns over the rise in U.S. rates. So that's interesting as well.
1: Yeah, and again this is another one of these controversial things where some people say, no, it's not useful. You can't really do anything with it. Others say it's important for understanding some level of the stock market's richness or cheapness. But I really liked that last point he made a lot, which is that, look, in the end, what causes bear markets is economic downturns. So no matter how great your valuation model is, there's no shortcut for trying to have a view on what's going to happen in the future. If you want to time the market and you don't have some ability to look ahead a little bit in terms of what's going to happen in the economy, no matter what your valuation model is, you're probably not going to do very well.
0: Right. Although I have an opposing pet theory, which is that if you consider that the recovery that we've seen since the 2008 crisis took place mostly in financial markets, then maybe it makes sense to think that whatever recession is coming up is going to be sparked by financial market turmoil as well. But that's sort of controversial. So I'll stop there.
1: Tracy, do you want to be a guest on a future episode? <laughs> and, and I can interview you about your theory of financial markets and the real economy.
0: You're inviting me to be a guest yes. on my own uh, podcast. Thank exactly. you, Joe. Thanks, Joe. No, I I won't. But um, it, it's an interesting discussion. I enjoy discussing it with you now, Joe. That's enough for me.
1: Okay, enough. Nice. Okay,
0: this has been another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at the stalwart. And you should follow our producer Topher Foreheads on Twitter, at Forges T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening.